Well, we're working our way through the summer of, of 2018, July 29th already, and simultaneously the story of Joseph. Now, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but the series, which is called Bloom Where You're Planted, and so all the titles begin with the word in. Part one was in the pit. Part two, again, bloom where you're planted. Part two was in Potiphar's house. Part three, in temptation. Part four, in prison. In neglect was part five. Last week, part six, in demand as Joseph stood before Pharaoh. Today we embark on part seven. It's Joseph, bloom where you're planted, incognito. After an amazing sequence of events, and this being one of the rare occasions where the word amazing is actually an understatement, Joseph will stand before his brothers with his identity concealed, incognito, as it were, as God's miraculous plan unfolds before our eyes. In part six, last week, Pharaoh had a dream. In the dream, he stands on the bank of the river, a clear reference to the Nile, which was the source of life and prosperity in Egypt. Seven fat cows came up out of the Nile, and they are eaten by seven emaciated cows. Then seven ears of corn, rank and full, are eaten by seven withered and blighted ears of corn. None of the wise men or magicians could make heads or tails of the dream. So Joseph is summoned from his prison cell to interpret the dreams of the king of Egypt. The dream indicates seven years of prosperity throughout all the land of Egypt, followed immediately by seven years of severe famine that will consume the land. And as we left off last week, Pharaoh had just appointed Joseph as the number two guy in the Egyptian empire. He had empowered Joseph with both the authority and the resources necessary to save the nation. I mean, what a story. Wow. This must be where the term rags to riches come from, right? I mean, from the bottom of the dungeon to second in command in one day. Only in Egypt. From here, the story begins to move fast. There's, there's so much happening that it's, it's hard to tell the story in a setting like this without reading gigantic portions of Scripture. But let me see if I can recap chapter 42 for you. That's where we're hanging out today. Genesis chapter 42. Joseph is now running the show as Pharaoh's top dog. And he had used the seven years of plenty to prepare for the abundance of corn that would be brought forth. He built large granaries and organized convoys of vehicles to transport large quantities of product to the storage facilities. He provided security to protect the stored grain from bandits and marauders. And he had to create a system of accounting and bookkeeping to track the corn 
and the money that would be gathered as they sold their product. Eventually, the seven years of plenty ran their course. But Joseph had impounded one-fifth of all the grain produced and stored it away in the cities. After the seven bountiful years, as foretold in the dream of Pharaoh and interpreted by Joseph, the years of famine began. The dearth was widespread, impacting not only Egypt, but the surrounding areas, including the land of Canaan, and a family some 20 years in the rearview mirror of Joseph's life. It's hard to believe, but two decades had passed. Jacob had been led to believe that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. Remember the blood-stained coat of many colors that the brothers showed to their heartbroken father. And even to this point in the story, the aging patriarch still mourned the loss of his favorite son. Now the family was running out of food in Canaan. And somehow they had received word that there was food in Egypt, so they, they planned a trip to purchase grain from the Egyptians. They're about to enter the twilight zone. <laughs> Genesis 42 points out that Jacob, Joseph's father, heard about the vast storehouses of corn in Egypt, and the trip is planned. All the sons would go, except Benjamin, Benjamin would be withheld. Benjamin, you see, is the youngest. You know how the baby of the family is. And the only remaining son, Benjamin is the only remaining son of Jacob, the love of Jacob's life, Rachel. So Jacob was protective of Benjamin. Benjamin is also Joseph's only full brother, which explains his special interest in Benjamin later in our story. So the ten brothers make the 500-mile journey from the land of Canaan to Egypt and stand before the seller of the corn. They're standing before Joseph, it says in verse 6, but Joseph is incognito. Incognito means to have one's identity concealed as, as under an assumed name, under cover, to avoid notice. It really is like a movie. Joseph recognizes his, bro recognizes his brothers, but he hides his identity and he speaks roughly to them. He even accuses them of spying out the land. Joseph interrogates them and asks questions about their family history. And with every word from the mouths of his brothers, Joseph receives more news from home. I can only imagine how emotionally overwhelmed he was. And yet he managed to conceal his identity. Joseph's next move, perhaps to buy some time, was to imprison his brothers on suspicion of spying, according to verse 17. After they spend three days in prison, he announces to them his decision. I read from verses 19 and 20. If you be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of the prison, and the rest of you go. Carry the corn for the famine of your houses, 
but you bring back your youngest brother to me, so shall your words be verified, and you shall not die. As we play this out in our mind, we need to remember, as part of Joseph's effort to conceal himself, he deals harshly with them, and he speaks through an interpreter. But he understands every word they say, including their interaction among each other. As Genesis 41, 42, 21, and 22 points out, And they said to one another, We're verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben, Reuben gives him the old I told you so bit. Reuben answered and said, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child. And you would not hear. Therefore, behold, his blood is required. Little do they know as they talk amongst themselves, Joseph is listening. Verse 23 and 24 says, And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for, they, for he spoke unto them by an interpreter, and Joseph turned himself away from them and wept. Joseph agrees to let his brothers go home. But he holds Simeon in prison while the brothers return to Canaan to bring food and to get Benjamin. Joseph is messing with their heads. But they haven't seen anything yet. They reluctantly leave without Simeon, but on the way, they go to use some of the provision that was provided for their journey home, and they find the money that they used to purchase the grain back in their sacks. They must have been puzzled by this. Was this a good thing? Was it a bad thing? Were they being set up? Were they in trouble? Who would do this? Why would they do this? Troubling thoughts surely consumed the minds of the brothers on the long hours of travel that passed so slowly on the long road back to Canaan. Upon arrival, they're faced with the unpleasant task of having to tell their dad that now Simeon was being held back in Egypt and Pharaoh's right-hand man wants to see Benjamin. Jacob, their father, absolutely refuses to send Benjamin back to Egypt for fear of losing him too. In his mind, Joseph is dead Simeon is stuck in jail some 500 miles away in a foreign land. There's no way I'm going to send Benjamin away too, he reasoned. Verse 37 and following says, Jacob their father said unto them, Me you have bereaved of my children. Joseph is not. Simeon is not. And you will take Benjamin away? My son shall not go down with you. Joseph incognito. But let's go back to that moment when the brothers stood before the second in command of all of the land of Egypt, the the greatest country on earth at the time. And as I picture the brothers standing before Joseph, who remember, as we've talked about in past weeks, Joseph is an amazing type of Christ. He pictures the coming Christ. I can't help but see 
us living out our lives before God as, as the brothers are, are standing before Joseph. I picture us living out our lives before God. They believed they were anonymous to the ruler. But he knew intimate details of their life. He knew about their father. And he asked about their younger brother. How could this be? And we stand before God thinking that somehow we have him fooled. We have our, our front stage, the part that we're willing to let everyone see. But God sees behind the curtain too. Now there are two aspects to this this morning. First of all, the Bible says in Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. David, the great king of Israel, the great psalmist of old, spoke well when he said in Psalm 51.3, My sin is ever before you. It's not my sin is ever before me. It's my sin is ever before you. My backstage is exposed to the God of heaven. God sees it all. The brothers stood before Joseph just just trying, just hoping, just wanting to buy food. But Joseph saw so much more. He saw their heart. He saw their past. He saw their sin. And so it is as, as we go about our business. God is not fooled by our money. God is not fooled by our activity. He's not fooled by our false motives. He's not fooled by our words. He sees into our heart of hearts and He has a full record of our deeds at His ready. Don't be deceived into thinking you're getting away with something. You can fool your boss. You can fool your spouse. You can fool your pastor. And tragically, you can fool yourself. But you cannot slip one by the King of Kings. Know this, your sin will find you out. Now the second aspect to this I want to touch on is, is that though God sees it all, church, He loves you anyway. The Bible says this in Hebrews 4.13, everything about us is naked and open to the all-seeing eyes of our loving God. Nothing can be hidden from Him to whom we must explain all that we have done. He sees your backstage. He knows all about your junk drawer. We've all got one. He do, it doesn't surprise him. He, he gets it. He, he knows you. He gets you. He knows about He knows about your most grievous sin, the one that you don't even like to think about. And he knows about your recurring sin. The one you're sick of confessing because you've repented so many times before. Now here's what you need to remember. Though God sees it all, he loves you anyway. In a familiar verse, John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
The passage continues in the verse 17. It says, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He didn't create you to condemn you. He's willing, in fact, that none should perish. He wants more than anything to redeem you. The fact that you are a sinner is no surprise to Him. The lengths He went to redeem you should tell you how He feels about you. He knows that you are a sinner. He knows that I am a sinner. And He loves us anyway. We do well, we do well to be open and honest with the God who knows it all anyway and loves us beyond our wildest imaginations. God knows exactly who we are. And Joseph knew exactly who his brothers were as they stood before him. Genesis 42, 7 says that he made himself strange to them. Why the mind games? Did you, did you ever wonder that? Why the, why the head games? Well, let me, let me give you four thoughts on why the mind games. Number one, to test their hearts. He wanted to see where they were at based on their reaction to his questions and his actions. To test their hearts. Number two, to determine the state of being of, of Jacob, his father, and Benjamin, his younger brother. To determine the, their state of being. Number three, to promote introspection. To bring their sin to remembrance. To get them to look at their own hearts. Why the mind games? To get the brothers to look at their own hearts. And number four, to bring about repentance. Everything that happens, everything that happens to the brothers in Egypt was designed to take them back to the pit where they first plotted against Joseph. Mind games. Does God ever do that? Remember when Adam and Eve sinned. Up until that point, God would walk with them every day in the cool of the day, the Bible says. Then Adam and Eve sin, and they, they hide from God. And what does, what does God do? God shows up at the usual time for his walk, and then he asks a question. Where are you, Adam? God knows exactly where they are, but he asks the question. I hate that. And even in our lives, even, even in our plans for evil, God is messing with our heads. Sometimes our plan for evil goes awry. And, and we get that. I understand why my plan for evil goes awry. But other times it goes smoothly. Too smoothly. God just keeps messing with our heads. I have an Uncle Tom and an Uncle Bill. Uncle Bill just turned 90. Uncle Tom is in his 80s. Years ago, when they were both around 10 years old, the master bedroom of the house that they lived in had been freshly wallpapered. They're about 10 years old. Nobody's home at the time. They're wrestling on their mom and dad's bed, my grandma and grandpa. They're wrestling on the bed. 
One of them throws the other one off the bed. The heel, his heel goes through the wall, makes a hole in the new wallpaper, and these guys are panicked. What do we do? We're, we're in big trouble. One of them remembers the roll of wallpaper is still in the basement. Down to the basement, they cut out the, they piece the piece of wallpaper, cut it out, paste it over the hole, good to go. 30 years later, they're home visiting, sitting around the kitchen table in East End, Joe Tomaszewski, of the house in East End that, that they grew up in, and they begin to tell the story about how the heel went through the wall, they pieced in the wall, and my grandma, sitting around the kitchen table, says, I knew about it the day you did it. <laughs> and they say, what do you mean you knew about it? You glued the flower upside down. You put the, <laughs> you've got the right flower, but it's upside down. Grandma is just messing with their heads. Now make no mistake, there are plenty of times that God is messing with your head. There's another story of a guy that's from the, this congregation. He happens to be out of town today. Back before he was serving the Lord, he was out on a Saturday night and he encountered somebody that went to church here, a good friend of his, and the friend invited him to church. Why don't you come to church? And apparently this was a, uh, that this friend would invite him often and, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe I will, maybe I will. So when this, this, uh, this guy that wasn't from here yet got home late Saturday night, he knew this friend would be calling in the morning. Now, you have to use your imagination. This is before cell phones for some of you younger folks. So when he, before he went to sleep, he took his phone off the hook <laughs> because he knew this guy would be calling. So the next morning, the guy that invited him calls, line's busy, calls again, line's busy, line's busy, line's busy. He's got it figured out. He goes over to the guy's apartment, walks in the door, walks over to the guy's bed, hangs the phone up, <laughs> and leaves. I think there's a lot of times that we think we got away with something. And God is just messing with our heads. Now another aspect of the brothers standing before Joseph is the dream fulfilled. Let's not forget Joseph's dream. Back in the beginning of it all, it was part one for us. Back in the first week of June, the beginning of the summer and the beginning of our story. Joseph is already his father's favorite. We've established that. A fact his brothers were painfully aware of. And then... Joseph naively tells his brothers about a dream. Verse 6 of chapter 39, he said unto his brothers, Here I pray a dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheep. And the brethren said unto him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you have dominion over us? And they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now here in chapter 42, 20 years later, his brothers unwittingly fulfill Joseph's dream that set the sequence of events into motion that brought us 
to this very moment. And Joseph, it says in chapter 42, verse 6, Joseph was the governor over the land. And, and he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and they bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. That ought to send a chill down your spine. How did the brothers not recognize him? Let me give you five reasons why the brothers didn't recognize Joseph. Number one, 20 years had passed. Two decades bring changes. Joseph was scarcely more than a boy, 17 years old, uh, when they last saw him. Number two, his head was probably shaven, as was the custom of the Egyptians. Number three, he wore Egyptian attire or Egyptian clothing. He was, he was very Egyptianized by this time. Number four, he spoke through an interpreter. And number five, he was in an exalted position. They just would not expect to see Joseph here. It makes perfect sense to me that they didn't recognize him. If you've been to a 10 or 20 year class reunion, my wife Rhonda has a class reunion coming. I won't say how many years. And if you've been to a class reunion, there are people there that you expect to see that you don't recognize. They even provide name tags because we don't recognize people that we went to school with. They were standing before their brother, who was incognito. And it serves to remind us this morning of our incognito God. If we're honest... God often feels incognito to us. There are plenty of times when we're left alone to figure out life's trials and tribulations. And in those times, we can wonder where God is. I'm sure Joseph's brothers wondered over the years, what had happened to Joseph? Where, where did he end up? Was he still alive? But Joseph was there. And when they needed provision, Joseph a type of Christ was there to provide. But his goal, Joseph's goal, was to do more than just fill their bellies. Like our incognito God, he wanted to satisfy their hearts. He wanted to restore their souls. There's a Bible story of a servant of Elisha who was gripped with fear because the odds in the battle were so stacked against them. He felt like, like you feel sometimes. Maybe, maybe it's how you feel today. The story is found in 2 Kings chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 15. It says, And when the servant of the man of God was risen early, and he had gone forth, behold, a host, an army, compassed the city, both with horses and chariots, and his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And the master answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and he said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes. Open the eyes of my servant that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he 
saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. The servant of the man of God could not see the Lord's army. God was right there, just incognito. His identity was concealed. He was, he was going unnoticed, but he was there helping us discover our strength, testing us, producing faith in us, in us something that we could draw from later. We all have those times when we're in need, and yet God is incognito. Josh is going through it now. Randy, Kurt, they're going through it too. The Hammersboards, Jim, many others. Some in their relationships. For others, it's financial. Some are in the midst of a health crisis. Some people just need answers. Some need direction. Some need wisdom. Where is God? He's there. Maybe his identity is concealed for a time. But if your spiritual eyes could see, church, hear me now. If your spiritual eyes could see, you would find the hills to be alive with the army of God. Full of horses and chariots of fire. We're not alone. Those that are for us, those that are with us, are more than those that are with them. Or perhaps if our spiritual eyes were open, God would be standing right in front of us. Like Joseph was standing right in front of his brothers, incognito. As I close today, let me give you three things to remember when God is incognito. Three things to remember when you can't see God in the midst of your situation. Three things to remember when God's identity is concealed. Number one, God is aware. Joseph was in the bottom of a dungeon. And God knew right where he was. He knows where you are too. Number two, God is there. So God is aware. Number two, God is there. He may be incognito. He, he may be undercover. But God is there. God is with you. And number three, God has a plan. Joseph is an amazing type of Christ. Joseph is an amazing type of Christ. Joseph, like Jesus, has a plan. If the brothers follow the direction of Joseph, they will end up with full bellies. They will end up with hearts that are fulfilled, relationships that are restored, and a place to live forever. All of that is true of us. Just because you can't see him doesn't mean he isn't there. And I know in your dark hour, Levi, it's hard to remember that. But on the other side of it, as we look back, we say, you know, I didn't feel God there. I didn't see God there. But God was there. 
So he gives us this story of the servant. We're never getting out of this fight. We are surrounded on every side. And Elisha says, if you could see what I see, you would see that the hills are alive with the army of God. There's horses and chariots of fire, and they're ready to fight on our behalf. God may be incognito today, but the hills are alive with the army of God. Father, I pray for the one this morning that's in the midst of a dark hour and they can't see you. They feel like you've abandoned them. They feel like you might as well be a million miles away. But Lord, today our faith has been stirred. We're reminded that, that you're aware of our situation. That you're there in the midst of our situation. And that you have a plan. Lord, I pray that you'll give us the faith to walk it out. The faith to trust you. The faith to see you in it. When the evidence points in a different direction. Lord, for the one that's here today that has never received you as Lord and Savior, maybe they've lived life on their own. They've gone their own way. They've thought to themselves, I'm a good person. Someday I'll go to heaven. Lord, I pray that today they would realize they can never be good enough to earn heaven. And their life is naked and open before the God of the universe. It's not just the front stage that's visible. God sees the backstage. And so the fact of the matter is we're all sinners. We all fall short to the glory of God. And so we need you. We need a Savior. We need the one who came to save the world. Not the one who came to condemn the world, but the one who came to save the world. And we put our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus, the one who died for our sins. And we confess our sins to him. We say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Wash away my sins. I repent of my sins. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Lord, I fall short of the holiness of God, the standard of God. And my only hope of perfection is the perfection that I find in Jesus. Lord, I'm thankful that the one who knew no sin became sin for us. I'm thankful that you're aware of my sin. You know I'm a sinner. And you love me anyway. Thank you, Lord, for redemption. Thank you for loving me in spite of my failures and my shortcomings. Lord, my desire is to live for you from this day forward, to serve you with all I've got, and to bring glory and honor to your name. I'm going to ask there's some people that I've already asked to, to be prayers today. And as the worship team uh, plays a couple songs, I'm going to ask these prayers to come forward. And if you need to be prayed for, it can be for a physical need, it can be for a financial need. It can be for uh, direct.